moments and backtrack as we just open up our theological mind to embrace the doctrine that I'm teaching to you today concerning the continual work of the Holy Spirit. The the series that I began just a few weeks ago was on the ministry of Jesus, to which I'll allude in a few moments' time, because his ministry came in the power of the Spirit. He, He was even unknown to people until that day that he stood in the Jordan River and the water Come on, pass through his feet as he was standing there. Then the scripture says he was baptized and the heavens were open. The Spirit of God came upon him and he was full of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it was that singular moment. But that's not the first record of the work of God's Spirit in the Word of God. If you even begin to, to take it back to the very beginning, it's actually in the book of Genesis, the very first chapter in the creation of the earth. When darkness was upon the face of the deep, the Bible says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. It's always been God's desire to move upon his creation. And you're a part of his creation, and he'll move in your life in a supernatural way. And when you study the Old Testament scriptures, even though I don't believe that every, uh, every uh, member of the, of the Jewish nation received of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, select men and women, perhaps beginning in Numbers chapter 11, when the Bible says that God took of the spirit that was upon Moses, and he put it upon 70 elders, and they began to prophesy. There were supernatural unctions and functions of the Holy Spirit that were oftentimes revealed through prophetical words or dreams or visions. God, how many of you know God sees the past, He sees the present, and He sees the future? He can reveal things to us. Jojo quoted a moment ago that God reveals things at His time and He opens and discloses things to us, allows us to see them. God's a God of miracles. Miracles didn't begin in the New Testament. You go back and read in the Old Testament. There were miraculous events, certainly from the plagues upon Egypt all the way until the the multiplication of of the manna from heaven to quail that swept in over the sea. How many of you know quail don't live in the sea? That was the miraculous divine provision from God. Elijah and Elisha both functioned in the power of God. Samson was a man that his strength was more than just tied to the locks of his hair. It was tied to a supernatural anointing upon his life. For the book of uh, Judges tells us that the Spirit of God began to move Samson at times in the camp and he could do great exploits. And David had a courage and a faith that was not normal. It was abnormal. It was born of God. To look at a nine-foot, nine-inch giant, have the courage to face him with only a slingshot in his hand. How many of you know that's not normal? That's supernatural. That's a, an anointing from God that was in his life, a courage that came from the Lord. And, and, but, but it seems as, as powerful as those uh, incidents are in the scriptures, they dim in comparison to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the miraculous ministry that he exhibited during the time, the three and a half years that he asked, actually ministered as an Old Testament prophet, bringing the power of God from the miracles of the sight being restored to the blind people, deaf ears unstopped, crippled limbs, people sick of the palsy. Uh, the scripture just gives us all the records, diverse miracles. A woman bowed over for 18 years and no wise could lift herself up. Jesus said, oh, not this daughter 
daughter of Abraham be loosed from this infirmity on the Sabbath day and 18 years of misery, come on, was overwhelmed by one supernatural touch from the power of Christ and the anointing that was on his life. And we read those stories and they, they, they lift our faith from Jesus standing outside of Bethany's burial chamber, chambers. Lazarus come forth till he touched uh, the, the, the young man that had died and the mother was following the, the, the casket there in, in Nain and the scripture says that he healed him and touched him and he raised up and the Bible says that the people said a great prophet has come amongst the people. It was a man that was functioning under the unction of the Spirit of God. There were times even that the Pharisees and the scribes attempted to ascribe his power to that of Beelzebub. It's in essence that blasphemous moment that you read about in the Word of God. For Jesus said, Satan cannot cast out Satan. He said, but I cast out Satan. Listen, read this later in Matthew chapter 12. He said, I cast out Satan by the Spirit of God, by the anointing on my life is what he was saying. He was Christ. Christ in the Greek is Christos. It means the anointed one. The miracles that Jesus did, he performed them by the anointing that was upon his life. He didn't perform them because he was the Son of God. He performed them because he was a man anointed of the Spirit of God not hindered by the weaknesses of the flesh, nor limited by the flesh. He had overcome his flesh on the 40 days of trial in the wilderness. And when he emerged from that experience, he was prepared to exhibit the power of God. It was measured out not just in the miracles. It was measured out in his teachings. It was measured out in the compassion that he showed, the, the love that he had for men and women. And this power was so prolific that Jesus had the ability to impart it to other people. There were times it would literally seep from his body in accordance to somebody else's faith. Remember the woman had the issue of blood that she said in her heart, but if I might touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. She pressed through the crowd and caught hold of his garment and immediately she was made whole. A 12-year-old fountain of blood was dried up by the power of God and Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? Remember that story? It's in the Word of God. Peter said, well, we all touched you, but there's a difference between just kind of touching Jesus in general and getting hold of the promises of God. And she got hold of the promises of God. He said, no, somebody has touched me differently than everybody else around me because I felt virtue. I felt something leave. He felt something seep out because of that woman's faith, and she was healed by the power of God. Jesus had an ability, and I don't understand exactly how he did this. Scripture doesn't give us the full record of how this occurred. But the Bible says that when he sent his 70 to go into some of the cities that he would go in himself, that he gave them power against unclean spirits. He gave them power to heal the sick. He gave them power to preach the word of God. I don't know exactly how that took place, but there was some type of transference of the power of God in Jesus' life until unregenerate men that had not yet been saved because the blood of Jesus had not yet been applied to the cross of Calvary, these unregenerate men receive of the power that's on Jesus, go into villages where he will forthcome or come later and minister and as they minister they experience the same results that Jesus did. Matter of fact they came back rejoicing. Luke 17 or Luke 10 says they came back rejoicing and said Lord even the devils are subject unto us through your name. 
It was a discovery that they had made. They had seen Jesus cast out devils, men and women tormented by unclean spirits. In the synagogue at Capernaum, he spoke the word of God and the man was delivered of the demonic spirit. And this was their first opportunity. And now Christ is not with them in the flesh. That He's put something upon them. I don't know if he breathed on them. I don't know if he laid his hands on their head. I don't know, but he sent them into the cities and they began to cast out devils and do miracles the same way that Jesus did. And so we know that when Jesus Christ, through his teachings, through the, especially the latter end of his life, that latter few months prior to going to the cross, he really begins to set the stage for his disciples to receive an additional work of God's Spirit in their life at a level that they have not yet received. Because he said things to them like this. He said, it is expedient for you that I go away. It is expedient. It means it's very important to you that I no longer remain with you in the flesh. Can you imagine what that felt like to them when he said, it is more important for you that I go there than to remain here? Because if I go there, I'm going to send something, something or someone beyond what you can experience with me right here among you. Because if I go there, I'm going to send the comforter. He's going to come and he's not going to just be on you. He's going to be in you. He's going to abide with you forever. The comforter is the Holy Spirit. And he said, he, when he comes into your life, he's going to glorify me. He's going to teach you all truth. He's going to show you things that are yet to come. Come on, somebody. He's going to empower you because he said this. Jesus said this, the works that you've seen me do, you're going to do also. And greater works than these because I go unto my Father. So there was an expectation in the hearts of the disciples that when Jesus went into heaven that he would send the, the, the Holy Spirit into their lives. Now we understand that they were not fully convinced of his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection. But when they finally came to grasp after those events had taken place, Jesus has died according to the... The scriptures, he's buried according to the scriptures. And on the third day, he's raised from the dead according to the scriptures. The Bible tells us that one of the very first things that he did when he appeared to his disciples was that he breathed on them. Do you all remember that? John's gospel records it. He breathed on them and he said these words, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now it is my belief that that experience was regeneration. It was the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating their the lifeless spirit until they were born again, born from above. See, he had already told religious leaders that unless you be born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Man's a triune being, spirit, soul, and body. Upon Adam's transgression in the garden it is our belief that the life of God seeped out of him in essence, if I can borrow those words. And until he has a soul, he can discern God, but he can't know God intimately because God is spirit. Those that are going to know God must worship God in spirit and in truth. And when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, he breathes on his disciples and says, receive you the Holy Spirit. And they are regenerate in their spirit. Now they know God, not from afar, not just through their mind, not through their senses, but in their heart. The Bible says God has sent his spirit into our hearts crying what? Abba, Father, 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 Sonship, Daughtership. We are children of the Most High God. His spirit joins with our spirit declaring us to be children of the Most High God. But that experience alone was not sufficient for what Christ had ordained his disciples to do. Being simply born again was not sufficient. There was another work of the Spirit of God. 
Jesus said to his disciples on the Mount of Olives prior to his ascension into heaven. Luke records it this way. He said, he said depart not from Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Wait, after 40 days, he showed himself of infallible truths until they were firmly convinced in the promises of God. And on the very day that he would lift up off of this earth into heaven's glory, he told his disciples, don't leave, don't start the ministry, don't preach a sermon, don't do anything until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so for 10 days, from Passover until Pentecost, we've seen in the scriptures, that they waited in the, in the temple, in the outer courts of the temple, and they're praising God and they're worshiping and they're in anticipation. Now, this is what's unique about this time in the, in the disciples' lives. It's not just the 12, but it's at least 120. That's captured in Acts chapter number 1. It's men and women. It's Mary. It's some of the servants that had followed Jesus' ministry closely, and they don't know fully what to expect or when fully to expect. They just know God has promised something for them they they don't they have they 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 to a degree understand a measure of the working of the spirit of god because they had experienced it previously themselves when he took the power of god off of himself and put it upon them and sent them to preach and they had read about it in the old testament when elijah and elisha prophesied and did miracles but they did not know exactly when or exactly how this was going to occur and so the writer Luke captures it for us in Acts chapter 2, the only place it's recorded in the Word of God. For it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And so when you put that according to the, the Jewish calendar, Jesus was crucified on Passover. And then he showed himself for 40 days by infallible truths. And then he was taken up into heaven. And they continued to wait in full anticipation and expectation that the words of Jesus would come to pass. And on the Day of Pentecost, when it was fully come, Acts 2 says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there came a sound from heaven. How many of you believe that this experience that I'm talking about is not from Springfield, Missouri? Come on, this is not from the religious world. This is not from the church. This is to the church from heaven. A sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house wherein they were seated. And the scripture says that the Holy Spirit of God sat upon each one of them, men and women alike, young and old alike, rich and poor, diversities of backgrounds mattered not. It was universal. The Spirit of God divided himself and lit, King James English, came upon them, sat upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other. Why are you afraid of speaking in other tongues? Why are you afraid? You'll go to a foreign country and hold a book in your hand to try to order a piece of pizza from a restaurant that you can't even read the menu from with a smile on your face, but you are afraid of an experience that God can give you that will radically change your life. I don't know why that is, but for whatever reason we are. And the Bible says that they spoke with other tongues and they prophesied, and when that began to take place, it was noised abroad. Now, it is our belief that that experience happened somewhere in the outer court of the temple. And it was so traumatic and it was so powerful to, to, to the, even to the natural eye that a crowd began to gather because there were those that thought that these men and women had been drinking. There's that drinking again. Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine, we're in his excess. 
but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter said these words. He said, these are not drunk as you suppose. It's but the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. Nobody's drinking at this time of the day. He said, but this is that. Listen to what he said. This is that that was prophesied by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God. God said, in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Come on, that's a great word right there. All flesh. That means everybody can receive of what God has for us. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. Upon their handmaidens and your servants I will pour out of my spirit and they shall prophesy. The unique experience and the unique context of this experience was this. Under the old covenant it seemed that the working of the spirit was limited to those that were placed primarily in an office to accomplish the will of God. You were either anointed to be a priest, you were anointed to be a king, or you were anointed to be a prophet. But it was a very restrictive ministry with limitations applied and not everybody could receive. But the hour was coming. God had prophesied it by the prophet Joel that there would come a day and an hour. There would come a moment when God would open up the door where all of us could receive of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. In essence, fulfilling the prophetical word in Numbers 11 when God took the spirit off of Moses and put it on the 70 elders that Moses said when somebody said, stop them from prophesying they're not even in the camp. Moses said, no. He said, God forbid. He said, I would that all of God's children would prophesy. So God said, I'm going to take it and I'm not going to make it exclusive to a particular uh, race. I'm not going to make it whether it's male only or female only. I'm not going to make it where you have to be in the priesthood. I'm not going to make it where you have to be on the platform or you have to have a five-fold ministry call. If you're my child or my daughter, God says, I will pour out my spirit on your life and you can have the power of God's grace in your life. Come on, somebody. Amen. That's a powerful experience that the church, unfortunately, even today is missing in many depths and many effects of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you take the time then to read the book of Acts and follow from that singular experience, it was not a singular experience. From that singular experience, God began to move. Come on. From that experience, the power of God. By the third chapter, the apostle Peter is going up to the temple at the hour of prayer to pray when there's a lame man laid at the gate called Beautiful, laid there. He was, he was lame from, his, from birth. And Jesus had passed him, not had healed him. But on that day, remember that story? It's in the Word of God. And he asked for an alm. Peter said these words, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have. You see, he couldn't have said that before, but now he can say that. See, he had probably been past him just a few days earlier, and he couldn't say that. He said, but such as I have, now I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He caught him by the hand and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping and walking and rejoicing, entered into the temple, worshiping God, set off a riot and a revival simultaneously. Come on, that's what the power of God will do. It'll set off a riot and a revival simultaneously. It's like a bomb going off. 
The religious leaders were angry and frustrated because they had crucified Jesus. They knew his ministry was miraculous, but they didn't believe that he was from God. And now it's replicated and multiplied in the lives of men and women. And the works that he's doing, they're now beginning to do. The apostle Peter could walk down the streets of Jerusalem and the sun could cast across his body and create a shadow. And when that shadow fell on a sick man or woman, the power of God would heal them and they would get up off that bed of infirmity. How many believe that's the power of God? The apostle Paul could be working in his ministry. He, is, he was not only his ministry, but his occupation. He was uh, bivocational. He preached the gospel, but because he was a foundational apostle, he said that he would labor with his own hands, and his labor was that he was a tent maker. And making tents in the Mediterranean climate, he would get hot, and so he would have a, a cloth on him that he would wipe the sweat of his brow. Well, people began to discern that there's an anointing on that man. He may look like a simple uh, tent maker, but he's got an anointing on his life. People began to take those pieces of cloth that were off of his body that are saturated with his sweat, but they're saturated by more than just his sweat. They're saturated by a divine anointing from God, and they would take the, uh, that cloth and send it to those that were diseased and troubled by demonic spirits, deranged in their mind and unable to function in everyday society. But when that cloth got put on that body, then the power of God brought healing to that man or woman's life. I don't know about you, but that just does a lot for my spirit to see how God can move such miraculous in such miraculous ways in the lives of men and women. And when you really take a giant step back and you look at the effects of that singular experience in Acts chapter number 2, you see that it was a continual work of the Holy Spirit all throughout the book of Acts from prophetical utterances and unctions to the supernatural directions and dreams and visions, miraculous provisions, supernatural protection. How many believe in supernatural protection? Paul's kindling a fire on an island called Melita, and a venomous snake leaps out of the fire and attaches to his body. I'm getting ready sometime in the not-too-distant future to preach a message called Snake Salvation. I can't go into that today. Don't get me distracted. Paul didn't hold that thing up and wave it around and dance around with it. He shook that thing off in the name of Jesus, went on about his business, supernatural power of God. How many believe we need such things in our lives today? These are not as strange things. This doesn't make us peculiar or make us odd. Or This is just the expectation God has for his children. Matter of fact, if you read closely the book of Acts, the book of Acts never closed. Luke never gives us a salutation. It is finished, the end. A lot of people believe it's not actually the acts of the apostles. That's what it's labeled in the heading, but it's the acts of the Holy Spirit who's working in the lives of men and women. Why is it never closed? Because God never intended for it to stop. Oh, Jesus, right there it is. Now, with this and this work of the Holy Spirit, now then at the time of the development and the formation of the early church, there came a need for some parameters because with this type of power that's loose in the lives of men and women, it can easily, it can easily become confusing if men and women begin to abuse it, misuse it, or attempt to co-mingle it with carnal or fleshly appetites. Come on, let's be honest. Thus, the apostle Paul begins to survey the church and he begins to discern the need for order in the church. Matter of fact, the book of 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 give us a little picture of the expectation that God has when the church does come together. 
when God has when, it's, when the people of God come together, there should be an expectation in us that if we have received of the Holy Spirit in our life in a powerful way, that the work of the Spirit should not be limited to the man that stands right behind that platform, come on, or that pulpit. But if I have received of the Holy Spirit when we come together, every one of you, 1 Corinthians 14 and 26, every one of you has a psalm, has a hymn, has a word, has a revelation, has a tongue, has a prophecy. Why have we limited it only to those that are in the fivefold ministry? This is more to fulfill Joel's prophecy outright than it's for everybody to receive and to use and to minister. So the apostle gives us parameters, clarification. He says, you know, tongues are powerful things, but he said, but in the ministry of tongues, let it be limited to two or three and always accompanied by interpretation because he said God's not the author of confusion. He's the author of peace. Now, in teachings that I will give you in the weeks ahead, we distinguish that between the initial infilling of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of speaking in other tongues as that of the ministry gift of tongues. I don't have time to go into that today. But the Apostle Paul was concerned that the gifts be not be misused. We should still hold to that today. Amen? Because we don't want to see these gifts and operations misused in our midst. But at the same time, the apostle concluded with these words about the gifts of the Spirit. Earnestly desire the best gifts. Seek after the best gifts. He said, don't despise these things, but long for these things. There are, there's a couple of things that I believe that are hindering the work of God's Holy Spirit in the midst of the church today. Let me give you these two things. First of all, number one is unbelief. There are some churches that don't believe in these things. They believe they passed away. They believe that they're called cessationists. They, these ceased with the end of the first century. And so therefore, their doctrinal belief is it was done then, but it's not done now. So if you don't believe in it, you're not going to receive it. Right? It's just plain and simple. But then there are others of us that believe in them, but perhaps we have them under more limited measure than what we ought to have, number two, because our lives have become too carnal. I'm being honest with you today because here's where I'm going to go. I've set the stage for you, and now I'm going to put a detour on you that you didn't see coming. In the weeks ahead, I'm going to preach about the gifts and the unctions and the functions of the Holy Spirit at that level and the spirit of prophecy and the things that can happen when we have these things working in the church at the depth that we should have them working. But let me tell you, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and the unction and the anointing in the life of a believer is not just so simply that you can prophesy to someone else or you can give them a message in tongues that needs interpretation, but it's so that you can walk holy before God. Sanctification, a forgotten doctrine in today's culture. Sanctification is that being set apart by God for his purposes and its use. Where we as Christians recognize that we are sanctified both instantaneously by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ applied to the cross where an unholy vessel is now deemed holy by God by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ. But we also believe in a progressive sanctification that the Holy Spirit comes into our life so that we can overcome the flesh, so that we can walk holy in this life. Listen, it's no good if I can prophesy to you, but I fail in my own life. It does mean no good at all to, to be able to speak blessing over your life, but in private, I'm still wrestling with some unseen, unseen to your eye, but not unseen to mine or God's eye, some secret sin that's keeping and limiting my life before God. I've got to realize that the anointing of God comes upon my life 
so that I can mortify the flesh. Oh, now everybody's preaching and shouting real good with me. So that I can mortify the flesh. If I'd have told you a moment ago that the anointing of God comes upon you so that you can prophesy and go to the nations, uh, people would have raised their hand up and said, yeah, that's me. I'm telling you the anointing of God comes upon your life so that you can overcome the dictates and the desires of your flesh and you are not dominated by the flesh. You don't walk in the flesh, but you walk in the Spirit. I'm just telling you the truth. And one of the reasons why there's a limitation of the power of God in the, in the Pentecostal church today is because we have limited the work of the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in our generation just to ministry gifts rather than to subjecting ourselves to the will and the plan and the purposes of God humbling ourselves, submitting ourselves one to another, not walking around with a carnal appetite and a carnal lifestyle, living ungodly, unholy, and immoral. Our lives are way too congested and too tainted and distorted, and we still look, sound, and feel like the world. I still believe that when you are the church, you are the ecclesia in the Greek, it means you are the called-out ones. Uh, we need to live like we're called out. We need to function like we're called out. We need to have an unction and an anointing upon our lives like we are called out and separate from a depraved society in which we live. Now in Ephesians 4, let me reference this. I've got a couple things and then I'll close for just a few, in a few moments. So don't get too happy just yet. I'm not finished just yet. Ephesians 4, remember I said the text, Ephesians 5 and 18, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Comes to us in a context that was created by the apostle when he transitioned out of the corporate work of the body in the 16th verse to the 17th verse of the 4th chapter when he said, now don't walk as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Remember what the preacher said last week? To this aside, I spelled it out for you. I don't mean to be uh, so rude and crude and limited in my vocabulary, but I spelled it out. The, the, the culture around us is crazy. I don't know, just a lack of a better word. I understand limited to my, my education, I suppose. It, it, it's, it, it's just, it's beyond, it's out of control. And so the apostle is saying, look, don't walk like the other Gentiles walk. They're in the vanity of their mind. Roll that. Let's just follow this for just a minute of time if we can. Their understanding is darkened. It's alienated from the life of God because of the blindness of their heart. Let's follow it for just a few minutes on down. They've given themselves over to lasciviousness. They work all uncleanliness with greediness. Their lives are, 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 are exceedingly sinful. But look at the 20th verse here. He says, but you have not learned so in Christ. You have heard him. You've been taught by him. The truth is in Jesus. You've got to learn to put off the old man, 22nd verse. It's corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Isn't it time that we as Pentecostal believers, the 25th verse, do more than just speak in tongues and prophesy, but we put away lying and we speak truth with every man that we are members of. Isn't it time that we arrive at the place where we can be angry and not sin? That we mortify our flesh? Come on, don't let the sun go down upon your anger, the Scripture says. And then certainly don't give place to the devil. What's it going to take for you and I to not give place to the devil? You cannot not give place to the devil when we live a carnal, congested lifestyle. Because when we do, we're letting the devil come in. 
Be ye sober, vigilant, for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We are to resist him steadfast in the faith. We are to resist him. But rather what we've done in our culture today is we've opened our arms wide and we've embraced everything that the world has for us. And we just simply say, well, I can do these things. It's my freedom in Christ. Yeah, you can do them and you'll live with the lingering effects of it for the rest of your life until you arrive at the place in your life where you say enough is enough. The power of Christ that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit dwells in me and he will quicken my mortal body. And I don't have to do those things any longer. I'm free by the indwelling power of God's Spirit and the anointing of God upon my life. And I've been anointed to do more than preach. I've been anointed to live holy in this wicked life that we live in today. God bless you. That's a good word for somebody. Uh, for the sake of time. This passage of Scripture in Ephesians 4 goes on down. And then ultimately, here's what he said, the 30th verse. He said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't sadden him. How many believe that it grieves the heart of God when his children show no maturity? Come on, no growth. You know, I understand when you're a child. Malachi was with us for the last two days. He's a child. He plays with children's toys. But there's a place in our life when we have some maturity that God expects us to arrive at where we no longer do the things that we used to do. A measure of progressive sanctification. He goes on in these passages of Scripture, bridging. I'm just hastily going to one uh, conclusion in just a moment of time. But he says, let bitterness and wrath and anger and all these things be put, upon, put away from you. Put away these things. Then he talks about fornication and uncleanness and covetousness and filthiness and foolish jesting and all these things and being a whoremonger and all these things. He said, these are things that you used to do, but now you are no longer who you used to be. In the fifth chapter, he goes on and he says, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness and righteousness and truth that you and I should be able to prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. That's why a pastor should have great conviction and great clarity to be able to preach a sermon like I did last Sunday and stand right here upon a little box and call it Soapbox Sunday and say, I'm not looking to the magazines of our culture that you see when you're standing in the line at Walmart to dictate to us what's right and wrong, good and bad, acceptable and unacceptable. Come on, I'm not looking to the mass media of our culture. I'm not looking to the White House. I'm not looking to the distorted religious culture that we have in America today that's approving and affirming everything ungodly and immoral. But I'm looking to the Word of God so that I can have a clarion voice that cries out and says, you know what, that's not right in the eyes of God and I've got the strength of spirit to be able to say it with boldness and conviction. That's what the Word of God says. We are the ones that should be able to speak against those things and reprove them. He goes on and he exhorts us. He said, we need to redeem the time because the days are evil. So ultimately he gets to this place where he says, so therefore, don't be drunk with wine. We're in his excess, but be filled. There it is right there. Notice that, that passage of Scripture it's not in 1 Corinthians 14 where it's talking about when we come together in church and the services and the function of the Holy Spirit. But in Ephesians over here, it's in this passage of Scripture. You're in the world. The world is evil. It's immoral. It's ungodly. You used to be like the people that you work with, but now you're holy. Now you're righteous. Now you're, children of, now you're children of light. Therefore, don't be drunk with wine like everybody else is around you, but be full. Come on, somebody. But be full of the Holy Spirit. Be salt, be light, be distinct, be different. I don't need you to pat me on the back every day of my life to make me feel good about myself. I feel good about what Christ has done in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. 
The Apostle Paul said, I am what I am. Come on, somebody. By the grace of God. Where does that revelation come? It comes from the unction and the anointing of the Holy Spirit in my life. So therefore, I don't have to walk and go where you always go. I don't have to do what you always do. I don't have to think what you always think. I can be distinctly different because there's an anointing upon my life. Oh, that's better preaching than you are shouting today. That's the prophecy of Joel, that the Spirit of God would come upon you and your life would be changed. You would have an anointing upon your life. You wouldn't have to taste what the world tastes. You wouldn't have to act like the world acts. You wouldn't have to do what the world does because you find your fulfillment in Christ. Come on, this is joy unspeakable and full of glory. I can't even always explain it to you. It's an unction. It's an anointing. It is to a degree an intoxication. Oddly enough, I don't know what it's like to be intoxicated. Not because I've always been righteous and holy. Simply was I was a basketball player and chose not to go down that road. But nonetheless, I know what it's like to have the Spirit of God begin to just bubble up on the inside of me until I just begin to stagger around in the presence of the Lord as I worship God. I don't know what it's like to get up in the morning and vomit into the, uh, the toilet and say, oh, I can't remember what last night was about. But I know what it's like to have the presence of God set upon my heart till I have joy and strength and courage and power and unction and anointing. And I'm not here to diminish your life if you do know those things. Uh, Such were some of you. But now you're washed. Now you're justified. Now you can be filled. You used to be drunk with wine. We're in his excess. You used to go to the electric cowboy. You used to go to the VFW and do your thing. But now you've got a joy and a peace and a grace and an anointing. And you're unashamed to dance and rejoice in the presence of God. I think we need to get church back to being church, that we have the power and the presence and the glory of God in our midst. We're going to have to change the culture of this church to do so. Lastly, in closing today at noon, straight up down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, follow this with me today. Because I took you along a road and then I switched you. I detoured you. Now I'm going to get back on the road later with the gifts of the Spirit and the unctions and the functions of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to know today the continuing work of the Spirit of God in your life is so that you can arrive at that place where if David could fight a Goliath and overcome, then you have the anointing in your life to cast down the works of the flesh. You have the anointing. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, preacher? What, are, what, are, what, are you, what should you do? That's what you should do. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. Turn it over. 17th verse. Pray without ceasing. Come on, whatever you do, wherever you are, come on, you're praying, talking to God. I'm telling you, the world should think that you're crazy. You drive a forklift, you ought to be driving that forklift. I mean, really. Come on, you go to break time, you ought to be standing there in line. Come on, and everything, give thanks. And everything, when you're up, you're down, when things are good, when things are bad, we're going to give thanks. Come on, somebody. That's the will of God, Christ Jesus, concerning who? Concerning you. Come on, Daryl, join me on the platform. It'll let people feel a little bit better about where I'm going. 19th verse. uh, Quench not the spirit. Right there it is. Uh, Remember, let me reach back to Ephesians 4, the 30th verse. He said, don't grieve the spirit. The spirit of God quickened this in my heart and said, when we grieve the spirit through carnal living, we eventually arrive at the place where we... Come on, y'all didn't catch that. I said, this is on a level of spirituality. You gotta, you gotta, I'm, I'm going to see you mature quickly this morning. Catch this. And when our lives are so carnal that we grieve the Holy Spirit, we're going to eventually quench the Holy Spirit. 
and limit his work in the church. That's why, let me tell you, you can go to Pentecostal churches that are Pentecostal in name only today. I'm being honest with you. There's no life in those churches. Come on, for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, but, but, but we, there, we have arrived at the place where we've quenched the spirit, we've grieved the spirit, and we've quenched the spirit. So then he says this, despise not prophesying. So that means if we're not to despise it, embrace it. Long for it. Desire it. Desire the prophetical unctions of God. 21st verse, follow it. Prove all things. Who should, be the, who should be casting the light to watch good and acceptable in the eyes of God? Come on, should it be President Obama and the Congress and the Senate? Should it be a distorted, perverted religious order of today? Or should it be the ecclesia that's truly preaching the word of God that proves all things? And when we discern by the Spirit that it's good, hold on to it. Hold on to it, trust in it, believe it. The Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not. Roll it 27, but then abstain from all appearance of evil. 23rd verse, and the very God of peace shall sanctify you wholly. Your whole spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the continuing work of the Spirit that I came to preach to you about today is sanctification. Sanctification is being set apart from that which is evil unto that which is good. It's both instantaneous and progressive. Instantaneously, I was made holy unto God when I put my faith and trust in Jesus' blood. But every day of my life, God is setting me apart for His purposes. Things I used to do, places I used to go, music I used to listen to. Come on, somebody. Programs I used to watch. Activities I used to participate in. God has done a work in my life where I no longer find the need for those things any longer because I'm busy about the Father's kingdom. Prove all things. Hold on to that which is good and abhor that which is evil. Where do you get the strength to do such things? Where does that come from, preacher? It comes from the power of God's Holy Spirit. Does that make sense today? Come on, it comes from the power of God's Holy Spirit. So I came to this house today to tell you that the continuing work of the Holy Spirit is more than just prophesying and speaking in tongues. But it's living holy before God. Come on, isn't it? Having the ability to do what you know is right and to refrain from doing what you know is wrong. This is not the law. Come on, it's walking in the Spirit. That's what Paul said in Galatians. If I walk in the Spirit, I won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Amen? Now today, what I'd like to see in this church family is us as a fellowship just commit ourselves to say, God, I want your spirit in my life at a depth and a level that I have never known previously. Come on, those are my prayers. That's the prayer I prayed when I, I have a rock in the backyard of my house down in the woods. It's my new preaching rock. So I warm these sermons up on Saturday afternoon. Nobody there to shout me down. Nobody there to say amen. It's there that I can pray and there I can preach and prophesy to myself. Still yet, the best sermons I ever preached, I've never made it to the pulpit yet. I've preached the squirrels happy for a lot of years. <laughs> but there will come a day when what I experienced there will manifest itself here. There will come a day. But my prayer was, God, my Father, 
purge me, cleanse me. God, take me to a new depth, a new place in you. God, my carnal lifestyle, let me shift away from it. If I'm grieving the Holy Spirit, then God, I want to repent of that today so that I don't quench the Spirit in our midst. Because you know what? If we are not quenching the Spirit, then that means that we have the potential to do what the first century church did. We have the potential to experience what they experienced. Does that, does that make sense? If I don't quench the Holy Spirit. So that's not something that I can set my heart on by myself. This is not, this is not something that I can do by myself. This is something we have to embrace. We as a fellowship have to say, God, I, I want to be a part of that. It comes with a cost. It comes with a, a humbling of ourselves before God. It comes when we say, you know what, I'm going to go beyond the normal order of my previous experience where I came to church, sat, listened, and went home. See, that, we will never embrace and experience all the things of God if that's our mindset. If church is, what we, is where we go and not who we are, we have missed the heart of God. Okay? So I'm going to ask you today in the name of Jesus to just for a few moments of consecration today, a few moments of consecration today, would you stand up? And would you have the courage to come forward as a fellowship, a united fellowship?